All right, so we weren't able to have our meeting on Sunday because of sickness in our group. And Friday, we had a Seder meal, which went pretty well, but we had one of our kids, my kid, throw up all over the place. It was awesome. So it was, it was awesome besides that. And we went on. We persevered. And it was interesting. We had a good time. And we're going to do that again, I think. And we'll do it better the next time. But we had a good time of fellowship, and we enjoyed the symbolism of the Passover and how it points to Christ. But because of that, we've missed out on some other things that we've been studying and other things that were planned we had to put off. And that's fine because we kind of roll with the flow here. But we're going to do a study that I intended on doing the Friday that we had our Seder meal. And this study has to do with the atonement. And what Jesus suffered for us on the cross. This is a huge controversy nowadays. And it shouldn't be, but it is. And it's one of those things that ranks up there with, in my mind, the deity of Christ, the the Trinity, the inerrancy of Scripture. It's an issue that undermines the gospel if you don't fall on the right side. And there's this push from, you could say, I would say liberal Christians who don't like the idea of Jesus bearing the wrath of God for our sins. They don't, they don't like that idea that Jesus bore God's wrath for our sin on the cross. Really? And so I'm going to explain before we get started the different views of the atonement. This is something that you'd learn straight out of an intro seminary class. I'm going to explain the different views of the atonement, and then I'm going to show you which one is the biblical one, because in fact, the Bible is very straightforward about it, but it comes down to the human mind reacts against certain biblical teachings, I think. We have a sin nature, and certain teachings aren't uh, palatable to us, and so we try to find an alternative, but we don't want to get rid of the Bible. We like the love of God. We like the idea of Jesus saving us from our sins, but the method of Christ on the cross bearing our sins isn't palatable to a lot of people. So so the fact that he takes the full cup, mm-hmm. they don't like that? They don't like that idea at all. Really? And um, I'm going to explain why in a minute, but let's first look at the views. And the text we're going to look at, which succinctly summarizes this, is 1 Peter 3, 18. So we're just going to look at verse 18. We talked about... The rest of this, a little while ago, and we started talking about verse 21, discussing baptism. We're not finished talking about that this Sunday. It's going to be in my sermon. We're going to discuss that a little bit. So anything that I haven't finished, I'll I'll wrap that up then. But we're going to look at verse 18 today. But before we do that, I want to explain the different views. So early in history, there was this view that... Christ was a ransom paid to Satan. So Satan's basically the God of the world, right? The God of this world. And because we are sinners, we're sort of in bondage to Satan. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was the payment to ransom us out of that bondage, the bondage of Satan. Which, of course, I think most evangelicals that know their Bible fairly well, they may not know the church history, but they know their Bible, they would say, well, that's ridiculous right. because we don't owe anything to Satan. We owe right. something to God. Right. 
And so if Jesus is going to pay something to God on our behalf, that makes sense. But paying something to Satan on our behalf, that that makes Satan the authority that's been offended. And that's not what scripture teaches. It says the sins against God. Right. So the ransom to Satan view was held by a number of early theologians. I don't think there's enough proof to show that that was the only view that people held back then. In fact, there are a number of theologians back then who didn't hold to that view, but it was a popular one, so I won't deny that. It was a popular view. So when was it? Um, the ransom to Satan. So when, when did that come up? Like, um, I can't think of a particular theologian right off the top of my mind, but I mean, in the first 500 years of the church, wow. there were people who held that view. Um, but there's also a question. Some historians have wondered, like, are we fully understanding what they're saying? Is it possible that you misunderstood you know, we're misunderstanding right. them? But anyways, that's the, the definition of the view. Now, the next view um, is called the recapitulation view. And this one, I think, is correct to an extent. And this was a, also early view held by Irenaeus. Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. So he's pretty mm -hmm. close. And... His view was that Christ is the last Adam, and as the first Adam disobeyed and brought sin into the world, the last Adam obeys in order to undo the first Adam Right. and what he did. And that's correct. Right. I don't think that it explains enough, and I don't even think that Irenaeus would say that that does justice to everything he was saying. That's just a summary. Right. But the idea is Jesus is the last Adam replaces the effects of the first Adam. He undoes it. Sure. And so that is right. He is our representative. He's our substitute. He stands in the same place as Adam did, except while Adam brought sin into the world, Jesus lives a righteous life for us, and he undoes Adam's sin by paying for mm -hmm. it. And that's what we'll get to in a minute. Um, but that's the recapitulation view. And some of these views can work together. Others I don't think work together and should just be discarded entirely. <laughs> but, but some do work together. The ransom to Satan view, I don't think is biblical at all. I think no. that it's true that God used Satan in the hours leading up to the crucifixion. For example, Satan entered Judas yes. and Judas betrayed Jesus to right. the, to the chief priests. So God used Satan, but was Satan being paid anything? Nothing. Nothing. So I think that that theory is wrong outright. Right. Uh, the recapitulation view, I think, is very insightful, but it's not complete. There's there's more to it than that. The next view is called Christus Victor. And Christus Victor means Christ is victorious. Christ is the victor. And the idea is that when Jesus died on the cross, it is a victory over satanic powers. Again, I agree with that. It's clearly taught in Scripture, but that's not enough. Exactly how is he victorious? How is his death on the cross a victory over those powers of darkness? You need more to answer that question. So Christus Victor, I don't think stands alone. I think you have to combine it with something. So some people might combine Christus Victor with the ransom to Satan view. Uh, and the analogy would be that Jesus is kind of like bait on a hook. Mm -hmm. And Satan goes after it greedily, but he ends up getting caught in that. And so that's actually a very ancient church analogy of what happened on the cross. Mm. Um, so you'd have to combine Christus Victor with something. I do believe in Christus Victor. I just think that there's more to it than that. I think there has to be a foundational idea that explains pri primarily what the atonement is. And then all these other ideas, I think, are supplemental. Uh, they go right along with it or are a consequence of it. But the next view 
is the governmental view or the moral government view. And the moral government view says that Jesus didn't actually pay our penalty on the cross, but he did suffer as a picture of the consequences of sin. So basically Jesus didn't literally pay our penalty and suffer the wrath of God, Mm. but he did suffer. And that showed that God was displeased with sin. And so it was really one big illustration. So it wasn't a literal paying of sin. God essentially is this moral governor who says, I really disapprove of sin. And I don't want anybody to think that I don't disapprove of sin. So So I I can forgive you and I will forgive you, but I want you to see how bad sin is. There's Jesus. Look how bad sin is. That's awful. So that's the moral governor. I know. And it's, it's it's actually not a, I don't think it's an ancient view. I could be wrong, but as far as I know, the major proponent of that view is Hugo Grotius and he lived around the time of the reformation. Okay. So this is, this is not a really early view. Um, of course, that doesn't, you know, prove it or disprove it, but I think that that view doesn't square up with the Bible either. Right. The Bible strongly <laughs> indicates that God, God was obligated by his own nature, not by some external authority, but mm. he himself, because of his righteous nature, had to punish sinners unless a substitute was given. And the punishment that was going to be on mankind mm-hmm. was placed on Jesus. So that way it wouldn't be placed on us. Right. And that's the same concept that we see again millions of times. Every time they offered animal sacrifice, they would put their hands on it. Right. That transferred their sin symbolically. When the animal died, it was dying for their sin. So instead of them dying, the animal died. That's a clear indication that the substitute is experiencing the penalty for that person's sin. Um, But anyways, moving on, uh, you have... The next view, and I and I like this view a lot. I, I still don't think it's complete, but I like it a lot. And it's called the satisfaction view. The satisfaction view. So Anselm was a medieval theologian, and he lived, I believe, in the 12th century. It may have been 11th century, but in the early Middle Ages, Anselm recognized that the ransom to Satan view was wrong. And he says as much in his writing. He says... We don't owe anything to Satan. We owe something to God because we were created by God Mm -hmm. in his image and we were expected to obey him and we disobeyed him. So if anybody has been offended, it's God. So he pictures God as this king. Now he says, we already owe God obedience. I mean, by definition, being his his creations, we owe him obedience. And we've obviously failed to do that. So in order for us to make up for our sin... Being perfectly obedient from this point on wouldn't be enough because we already owe him that. Right. So if we did it from this point on, well, that wouldn't make up for the sin that we've already committed. So there has to be restitution and that restitution has to be uh, proportional to the sin that we committed against God. And since the sin we committed against God is infinite, then restitution has to be infinite. And I agree. I agree with that logic. I think it, it works. So what happens is... In this theory, Anselm says the Son of God, who's fully God, becomes fully man. So we have an infinite being who is now human as well. And so he's in a position to be a substitute because he's human. He stands on the same Mm -hmm. level, having come down from heaven. He's on the same level as man. He's one of us. And so he's able to represent us. So 
He lives a perfect life of obedience, but again, that perfect life of obedience is something that we already owe God. So he had to do something that would go over and beyond, and that over and beyond was him dying on the cross for us. That level of suffering, that level of obedience through suffering is proportional to the crime that was committed. Right. And so that makes restitution for us. So I agree with all of that, but the one thing that seems to be missing is the penal nature of things that Mm. there is a penalty that has to be paid. So he recognizes the idea of restitution. We're giving to God something and what we owe God is obedience. So Jesus has to go above and beyond and give a super obedience. Right. And that super obedience is the death on the cross. And because he is the son of God, he's infinite. And that becomes infinitely valuable to God. Okay. So I think that he's good, but I think he's, he's falling short. And that's where we get to the final view. And this was a view that's a lot of people caricature it as a, a late comer. It's like a Johnny come lately view yeah, yeah, yeah. that the reformers came up with. There, there is evidence of this view in the early church. In fact, Athanasius, he's famous as a defender of the Nicene Creed, a defender of the deity of Christ. He lived in the four, uh, the fourth century. So three mm-hmm. hundreds. And in his writings, he does say that Jesus took on our, our, our penalty suffered uh, punishment for our sins. And before him, some of the earliest Christian writing written by a guy named, um, let's see if I can remember a uh, Mathetes. Okay. Mm. Um, and he was writing to a guy named Diognetus. Mathetes means disciple. So he's, he's writing to this, this person named Diognetus and we don't know who that is, but mm. some people think it may have been an advisor of Marcus Aurelius. So huh. this, this may have been someone really high up in the Roman government, Sure, but he writes to this official, this Roman official to instruct that person in what Christianity is. Like, this is who we are. Yeah, right. And in this writing, it's powerful. Like, it's sound theology. Mm. I mean, I, I've read it many times, and I just find myself amening what it says. But in it, it does teach justification right. by faith. And it teaches that that justification is based on the substitution, that Jesus stood in our place, and the the just suffered for the unjust, and there was a trade that went on. Right. So Jesus took our sin and paid for it and suffered it, and He gives us in place His perfect righteousness. And I'm like, that's exactly what Paul says right. yeah, yeah. in Second Corinthians five twenty one. You know, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, mm-hmm. so that we might be the righteousness of God. So that idea that Jesus suffered in our place so this trade could happen is very early in the church. Hmm. Uh, but of course. The atonement, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. The atonement is confusing. I mean, this idea of Jesus paying for the sins of all the world from every time period, yeah, right. In six hours on the cross, I mean, it is hard for humans to understand that. So I, I really believe that some theologians they ventured into um, dangerous territory in their own attempt to wrap their mind around it. So I think we should just stick with scripture on this right. and as far as scripture is concerned and this is one of those things where logic uh you know apologists they like to apply logic to show the christian faith to be reasonable and in a moment i'm going to explain to you why i think penal substitution is actually very logical uh but before the logic we have to just stick with scripture even if it doesn't make sense and the reason that a lot of people say it doesn't make sense is because in a court of law it wouldn't be acceptable they would say that all right you know, this person's going to go to the chair. You can't take their place, right? I mean, that mm. doesn't work in our courts. Well, 
one could respond and say, well, on a level, on a certain level, it is acceptable. Mm -hmm. If someone owes so much money, you can pay their fine. Um, An employer can be punished for uh, what the employee employee does, does. you know, so there there is some uh, parallel in our law. But here's the thing. Why should we expect there to be a parallel? I mean, we're Mm -hmm. sinners sinning against each other. We're not sinners sinning against God. This is a human court. This is a God's court. Yeah. And we're not talking, we're talking about humans and humans. We're not talking about God, the father and and Jesus, who's the God man. There's so many factors here about the cross that are unique. And so I don't think that we should expect a human Mm -hmm. analogy from our court to perfectly explain what happened. Because we don't understand perfection. Yeah. I mean, I, I just don't think that we should expect that. So apologists don't like that though (laughs) because they want to be able to show Christianity to be reasonable. But here's the thing. Christianity is a faith. So you have reason to believe it. Okay. We have reason to believe Jesus came back from the dead. Mm -hmm. We have reason to believe that the, the the word of God is really the word of God. It's inspired. But eventually as a human, you have to humble yourself and admit there's a lot of stuff that I just, I just don't know. I mean, we don't, we don't know a lot about the world we live in. Imagine the spirit world, which is, beyond us and we don't experience it right right uh what we know about it is given to us in the yeah. word of god we don't know the laws yeah we don't there's a lot of stuff we don't know and right. god gives us very little right. i mean he gives us what we need right that's mm-hmm. it and we expect us to walk by faith and not by sight so let's talk about uh penal substitution in this verse finally getting to first peter three eighteen, for christ also hath once suffered for sins by the way, once is important, just like in the book of Hebrews. He doesn't suffer right. again and again. This isn't like with Roman Catholicism in the Eucharist. The sacrifice is constantly being given. Every time they take the Eucharist, they take those elements. It, it becomes the body and the blood of Jesus, and the sacrifice is made anew. And their crucifix has Jesus still on the cross. Protestants don't have crucifixes, and that's because Jesus still isn't suffering on the cross. So he suffered once for sin. Right. The just for the unjust. So Jesus being perfectly without sin is replaced with the unjust. So they're taken out of their position of judgment and Jesus is put in their place. So this is a a clear indication of a trade. Substitution is going on here. All right. First Peter eight. First Peter three eighteen. Three eighteen. Sorry. So the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. So who are we being reconciled to? All right. This transaction that takes place is being given or being paid to God, not to Satan. This ransom that takes place is something that God expects. This is his right. This is his justice that's being satisfied here. Being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the spirit. Now this is where it gets really cool because it seems to be that in this last this last section here, when it says he's put to death in the flesh, but quickened in the spirit or quickened by the spirit, that is indicating two dimensions to the atonement. So you have the physical, he's put to death in the flesh, Mm. but then in the next line, it says, but quickened by the spirit. Now the word by strictly speaking, isn't in the text. It can be translated that way, but it's most likely put to death in the flesh and quickened in the spirit. So mm. got, it's the same. There doesn't, yeah. there's not a different word in Greek there. And, and you might think that yeah. if you read it. So what is your translation? Uh, I, my mind says, but made alive by, by the spirit. Yeah. So. And, and so 
the idea is what's the spirit being referred to here? If it's the Holy Spirit, the idea is Jesus was put to death physically and he was resurrected by the Holy Spirit. Spirit. And that is a traditional view. It is allowed by the text. But because there seems to be a contrast between the body of Jesus or the flesh of Jesus Mm. and then the spirit, this seems to be referring to Jesus as a whole man. Mm. So we're not talking about the Holy Spirit. We're talking about his flesh and his spirit. And those together make up Jesus. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. No, I'm not going to get into the creeds. I'm not going to get into all those other things because sure. that's way too much right now. But the basic idea is Jesus as a person here is presented as having flesh and spirit. And in his flesh, he was put to death. Now, the word, the wording in Greek is really tough. And there's lots of different options. But as I've studied the commentators, those who are most technical seem to say that what this is indicating is not necessarily that his flesh was put to death, but that he was put to death in the flesh while he was in the fleshly realm, having a fleshly existence. So while Jesus was living out his life in the flesh, yep. that life in the flesh was cut short through death. Yep. Okay. So that's going to be important in a minute. Okay. Um, but then when it says he was quickened in the spirit, that's the other side of the same coin. So Jesus was put to death while living a life in the flesh, but immediately upon that death, when that fleshly existence came to an end, his spirit was made alive. Now, some people think that's the resurrection. I don't think so because in verse 19, it says by which or in which he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. In in a previous lesson, we talked about how that's referring to him in spirit between his crucifixion and resurrection. He is going to the place of the dead specifically here. This is the place where the fallen angels are being housed and he's preaching a proclamation. And this proclamation is one of victory because the cross was a victory. Why is the cross a victory? Because he just gave to God what God deserved. Right. God was uh, offended and Jesus made restitution by paying for man's sin. So now that God has been satisfied, even if the world doesn't know that right now, I mean, everybody is still hiding in the upper room. Mm. Everybody thinks that this is a great defeat. Uh, It's another question as to whether Satan thought it was a defeat. Uh, Some people think uh, Satan was trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross. And some people think that Satan was blindsided by the cross. He didn't know. I lean towards he was trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Yeah. And while Jesus was on the cross, he wanted Jesus to come down from the cross. That's why he was getting the people to say, if you're really the son of God, then save yourself. Right. Because Satan knew that if he did that, if he gave into that temptation, then it would be over. Right. So that's, that's where I lean. But again, that's another topic for another day. But when it says he was quickened in the spirit, this seems to be that Jesus's death experience ended when he gave up the ghost, when he's on the cross and he says, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. Right. And he breathed his last. And it says he gave up his spirit in the Greek. It's yes. actually a unique phrase. And it seems to strongly indicate that Jesus gave his spirit. He, he laid down his life rather than having it taken from him. So right. while we as humans, we have no control over when our spirit goes. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, unless we violate God's law and we take our life. But in Jesus's case, it's indicating that just as he had the authority to, to lay down his body, he had the authority to take it back up again too. And he talks about that, um, before he went to the cross. But anyways, he laid down his life 
And that's when the death was finished. Like it culminated and it ended right there. And immediately Jesus was made alive in spirit. This wasn't the resurrection. Jesus was now in the spirit realm. Okay. So did he go back to what he was before? Okay. So this is okay. Yeah. So there are some people who think that immediately Jesus went to heaven and, and there he presented himself to the father. I don't think so. I don't think he went to heaven until the ascension. Okay. Um, which was after the resurrection. So here I think he's going down. He hasn't ascended yet. And if you look at Ephesians 4, it seems to put the order this way. He comes down. You know, he's incarnated. Yep. And then he dies and he goes further down to the lower mm. parts of the earth. That's where he's at right now between his crucifixion yes. and resurrection. And then he raises from the dead. So now he's back on mm. our level, right? Yep. He's he's on on the the plane of man if you want to use sure. that terminology and then he ascends to the father and that's when he presents himself there so what was he doing during that time he was preaching to the spirits in prison he was letting the people in paradise know that he had come and he was taking them out of paradise i mm. think that if you piece things together again this is not explicitly stated but if you piece things together i believe that that's one of the things that Jesus did. He preached good news to those people who were in captivity. Captivity as in they were awaiting Jesus to pay for their sin. It hadn't happened yet. But now that he had paid it, he could go and he could say, I paid it. So you don't have to be in paradise anymore. You can go to the third heaven. So, but the the the, the, the um, thief on the cross with him, today you will be with me in paradise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he goes down, but then comes up at the resurrection. Is that what you're saying? Uh. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I think so. At the same time. Yeah. And I, again, as far as, I mean, obviously when they went up, the people who were in paradise, when they went up to heaven, that's not visible like the ascension is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like Jesus visibly went up and. No, no. Yeah, I, I so, get that part. Yeah. Right. But I do think that once Jesus went down and he proclaimed that good news, when he left there, they left with him. They left with him. Yes. I do think so. So that, that kind of contradicts then that whole. If you're not in, what is it, uh, to be present in the, what is it? As soon as you die, you you immediately go to heaven. Well, that, it wouldn't contradict that because Paul, when he's speaking, he's on this side of the resurrection. Sure. Right? And he's saying now. He's, say, he's saying to be absent. You're from, not going to paradise. He's saying for Christians, when we die, we're with right. the Lord. Yeah. And, and that's one of the spe- specific blessings of the new covenant that they didn't have. There you go. Okay. Um, at least according to this view, which I personally hold. So, but going back to him Sorry. being made alive in the spirit. Yeah. The words are, it's one word in Greek, but it means to make alive. So make alive literally implies that he was dead. But what's interesting, mm. as obvious as that is, okay, it says that he was made alive in spirit. Right. So I read an interesting article by a fella, and he was defending the thesis that Jesus died spiritually on the cross as well. Mm. And I agree, because mm. Jesus bearing the wrath of God is not a physical reality. Absolutely. It is a physical reality, excuse me, but it's that and more. It's not, right. And so Jesus on the cross, when he experiences this forsakenness, this abandonment, He's bearing the wrath of God. And though it can't be seen, God gives this visible darkness over the land to demonstrate that's happening. How do we know he was forsaken? Because Jesus says so. Um, And I think that it was in this moment that Jesus was taking on that infinite wrath of God. But when it says he was made alive in spirit, that seems to indicate that now 
that all that death is past. Like when Jesus said it is finished, there was no more suffering in hell. Like right. this idea that among Pentecostals that Jesus went to hell and suffered there is ridiculous. Mm. Okay. He said it is finished on the cross. Okay. Now he said that. Okay. We don't know how long, but he said right. it moments before he died. Right. So strictly speaking, there was one last thing to do and that was to give up his spirit. But John is full of proleptic statements, you know, mm. statements where it's about to happen. So we're going to sure. treat it as if it already has. So when he says it is finished, he knows that it's coming to a close. Mm -hmm. Okay. He's about to give up his spirit and that's going to finish this death thing. All right. So when Jesus on earth was in a fleshly existence, he was put to death. And I think that death obviously is physical. Yeah. But I think it's more than that because if it wasn't more than that, then why would Peter say immediately after this death, he was made alive yes. in the spirit. So made alive in the spirit means no longer is God's wrath against him. As far as the son and the father are concerned, when the father looks on the son who's in spirit in this place where the, the prison is and where the spirits are kept there, when the father sees his son, he's pleased with him. Mm -hmm. And there's no more suffering. Jesus is, right. he's free from that. Yeah. Everybody else wouldn't figure that out for the next three days, right? Then they're mm -hmm. going to find out yeah, after yeah, that yeah. happens. But at that point, Jesus is alive. It's like this, this deal where the battle's been won and all there's left to do is to proclaim the battle. Yeah. Right. Because and, it, the wrath of the wrath of God upon him, that separation of God, well, it may have been a split microsecond you know what i'm saying yeah and but see, it, that's, that's an eternity yes if and you so think about it, it, it right? isn't it isn't infinite and infinite it's not in, right yeah it's an infinite but, punishment so let's explain how that works right okay and this is where the logic comes into it so um i think that the best way to understand the atonement is to take the satisfaction theory that we talked about okay and the penal substitution theory mm. and put them together. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the idea is what does God have a right to when he made us? What did he have a right to everything. obedience? Yeah. Everything that we have, right. Yeah. But we give ourselves to him. That's, that's his glory. Yes. Okay. He's righteous to, to disobey him is the definition of sin. Right. So we are to give obedience to him. Well, obviously we failed in that, right? Mm. So Jesus, when he came, as a man, he has to make right that situation. God is angry at mankind because mankind has sinned. Mm -hmm. And in order to make up for that, God has to be, and this is going to be human terms. I'm doing my best with this because, sure. again, I'm just a human. <laughs> but God has to be convinced to let mankind back into his good graces because mankind has offended God and as loving as he is, he is a just God who cannot yes. allow that sin to go unnoticed and unpunished. And right. unpunished. Right. So Jesus, he comes into the world and he lives an obedient life. Perfect. Sinless. Mm -hmm. But that's still not enough, right? You can imagine, I can imagine God being like, Jesus, you've done wonderfully. You lived a sinless life. You have a right to eternal life. Sure. You have a right to heaven. Mm -hmm. But they don't. They don't. Why? Because they are infinitely in debt to me. And what you did, it qualifies you for eternity, mm -hmm. but it doesn't qualify them. So you have to do something to handle the elephant in the room. Right. And the elephant in the room is this mountain of debt, my wrath against sin. Yep. So what Jesus does 
and this is where it gets interesting when you put the two theories together. Jesus obeys through suffering, and that's something we see in Hebrews. Okay. He offers himself willingly, unlike those animal sacrifices that were just they were you know chosen and that was involuntary it. dummies yes. that you know had no choice in it. Jesus voluntarily obeys even through death. that death, even yes. through that suffering. So basically, I, I imagine it this way: in order for Jesus to obey in such a way that would cover our sin and overwhelm it and extinguish mm. it and just make it like it's not noticeable anymore. Like it's not even right. worth mentioning right. in order to obey that much. He would have to obey through the infinite wrath of God that was yeah. poured out on him at the cross. I imagine it kind of like uh, this analogy may help you. It's like Jesus is at the very bottom of this ocean of black tar. Yeah. And he has in his hand a crown, obedience. And he has a right to that crown because he lived a perfect life. Mm -hmm. But mankind has stacked against it God's infinite wrath. So he has to take that crown of obedience and hold on to it and not let go Mm. and push through the blackness and to swim to the very top. Mm. And when he gets to the top, he's able to present that crown. Right. And now it's not just his crown, it's our crown too, because he did that on behalf of us. And that's why the inheritance of Christ is one that we can participate in. So Jesus obeys through the suffering. It's sort of like, you know, at any moment Jesus could have tapped out. He could have said, I'm done with this, right? Right. I mean, (laughs) sign me up for heaven, right? I mean, I deserve it after all, but these people don't. I'm done with this. But he didn't tap out. Right. And that would have that would have required a resolve that I can't wrap my mind around because when you're experiencing the infinite wrath of God and we, I mean, we're using these words like they're nothing, but I mean the infinite wrath of God when he's experiencing that and how could he do it as a man? Well, Mm. it's because he's being, and this is again, a, a physical analogy, but he's being held up by his divine nature. His divine nature is supplying Jesus's humanity with the fortitude. I suppose you could say it's necessary for Jesus to push through and to actually yes. do this. Cause a human couldn't do it. I mean, how right. can we bear an infinite penalty right. in three hours? Couldn't right. do it. So the divine nature of Jesus is supplying that, but Jesus is still suffering as a human. And yeah. so it's kind of like your hand being put in a fire. You know, do I have the resolve? Do I have the strength to stick my hand in there? I have the strength to do it, but am I going to do it? Right? Cause that's a choice. So it's like Jesus has this divine power which could bear up his human nature and and make him suffer all of that wrath. But Mm. the very act of him choosing to do that is exposing him to all the despair and the torment. And he doesn't stop. It's, again, the the best analogy I can think of is someone sticking their hand in the fire and not pulling it out. Every part of them is saying, stop it, pull it out. And, And I can imagine Jesus going through all that you know, there's this, you know, despair that his humanity is feeling and every part of him wants to say, I'm done, but he pushes through and that obedience is of infinite value. And that is what covers our sin. Jesus didn't stop. Yes. He's got this infinite weight on his back and he bears up until he's completely paid off right. the debt, you know? And so again, those are all physical analogies. Because yeah. this is something that I don't think we could ever fully wrap our minds right. around. Even if we reflected on it for the rest of our lives, it, I don't think we could. It, and it's almost, it's not the same, but it kind of is the same. It's in the same. It shows you how the Holy Spirit helps 
what people that are um, persecuted, right? Like mm-hmm. Voice of the Martyrs, um, Richard Wormberg, I think that's his name. Um, yeah. Talks about they're in prison um, under the Russians, under the Soviets, and there's a group of them, and they always preach to each other, and but they wouldn't allow them to preach. So he says there was this one of them, one of the guys was preaching to them, and teaching and stuff, and the guard comes, takes him away, beats him for hours, right, and mm-hmm. he, he's tortured. He comes back sits down and says okay where was i mm-hmm. and it, it's like he what did he say something basically he said we had an agreement you know that that we would um we would preach and and they would beat us mm-hmm. but it's the same how could they keep doing that yeah. you know um preaching knowing they're mm-hmm. gonna get beaten yeah. tortured and, not and, just beaten but tortured and it's it is similar to that and I, I never never thought about that but it is but it's like when we're talking about the humanity of jesus and the divinity of jesus it's almost we're so tempted to separate them yeah because to us that's the way it works it's right. this or it's that yeah so i we can't do that we no. know jesus is one person he's it's not like one person is holding up another person right you know the divine jesus holding up the human jesus that's wrong okay right. it is one person we're talking about here so again it's jesus is making this choice to take what he has available and to offer it to god and to not stop right now a normal human being couldn't give that because they don't have it to give absolutely right we don't have infinity to give and right. god and this is another thing this is just logic God can't make a finite being infinite. Right. Um, there's no infinite but God. Right. I mean, there's only one. Right. So only an infinite being, only God could do this. Mm-hmm. But only a God-man would be qualified right. to stand in our place. Mm-hmm. Because if if God gave this obedience, if Jesus just came down and he appeared human, well, he's not actually human. So right. all the obedience he gives isn't really human obedience. Exactly right. It's God obedience, which... Right. That wouldn't do any good, right? He so, has to come down as a baby and so born. He has and... to be a human. Yes. And if he's a human and he obeys a, a God through living a sinless life, that's good. You mm. have to have that. To be qualified to pay for other people's sins, you got to make sure you don't have any of your own. That's right. So that's necessary, but it's still not enough. He has to account for the infinite debt that's stacked against man. And so he obeys through it. So again, I imagine all of these these physical analogies to explain it. I don't think that they, they encompass it, but that's where those two theories that I explained Anselm and the reformer view, the penal substitution, view, they do come together. Sure. So what really satisfied God? Was it Jesus suffering or was it Jesus obeying through the suffering? Mm. That's where it's, you know, it's interesting. I think that what chiefly satisfied God was Jesus's obedience and his willingness to suffer for the Father's will and out of love for the world, I think that's what was so valuable to God. Mm. But again, in order for him to in order for him to have an obedience an obedience of infinite value, he would have to obey through the suffering. He would have to obey right. through the wrath. And so I could be wrong on the way I'm seeing this. 
But I will say this much, and I don't think I'm wrong about this. Jesus did bear, however you look at it, whatever angle you look at it from, Jesus did bear our punishment. Absolutely. Now, since our punishment is infinite, that's why hell's everlasting. That's right. I mean, if listen, God's not going to send people to hell forever unless that is what they deserve. You right. know, I mean, God doesn't torture people in, in, a, in a sick, unjust, cruel way. Everything right. that they experience is exactly what justice demands. So Jesus on the cross, you, you can't just be there as a human being suffering physically and that's it. Right. There's got to be more that's going more. on. Yeah. So whether you explain that, well, okay, well, he's infinite God. And so that lends value to the sacrifice or you explain it as he's literally bearing our infinite wrath. I think that he literally bore that. But the point is, there's more to it than just him dying physically. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, what proof is there in the Bible for that? Well, Isaiah 53, I think, is the place that we ought to go to when we talk to people about this. It says that he was crushed, crushed for, our- for our iniquity. So, yep. and he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. He All the iniquities that we have done, he suffered for those. And again, for it to be equivalent, for it to actually satisfy God, for a human being to satisfy God on behalf of other humans, he would have to suffer what they deserve. Right. Which is all of it. Right. And so I can't imagine that. Um, but I think that was probably, that was probably what Satan was trying to dissuade him from experiencing by telling him you you, you don't you, have to go through you this. don't have to go through that you have no idea how bad it's going to be or jesus you do know how bad it's going to be you do have an idea he did know and you don't want to go through that no. and and though it's not stated explicitly that satan was in the garden of gethsemane i think he was because in luke luke it says that he sweat blood there and he was strengthened by an angel well yeah. earlier on in the book at the very beginning in fact he's in the wilderness and there Satan tempts him, he resists, and it says he left him for a season, which right. is translated as he left him for an opportune time. So he's like, I'm going to come back. Yeah, yeah, And I'm going to yeah. come back when you're weakest. You're weak now. You resisted. He was weak. But you're going to be weak. I mean, you're going to be weak again, and I'm going to get you when you're weak, weak again. Is, you know. And when he was sweating blood, yeah. And he was saying, "God, Father, take this cup will, away yeah. from me." Right. That was when he was weak, and I think Satan was whispering in his ear and saying, "Yeah, just ask him to take it away. Just yeah, just don't do it. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do it. Like you don't, you don't listen. They don't deserve that's right. This, and I think that's another thing. Like when people wonder why did he possess Judas? And again, this is my opinion on this. We don't know, but I think that he wanted to show Jesus, this man followed you all these years, mm. and you've loved him and done nothing but good for him." And you've overlooked every time he stuck mm. his hand in the money bag and stole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. did all that, and now he's betraying you. I mean, are you going to die for that? Because that type of betrayal is what everybody really is. All these humans are just like Judas. Are you going to die for them? Peter, Yeah. let me have this one. I'll get him denying you three times. That's right. What about all the disciples? They're all going to leave you. They're all going to scatter. Yeah. Look, look at how look at how unworthy they are. And Jesus, he he still died for them, and he died for all of us. But I think that as a human, we're so tempted. Like I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that well, course, for you. Yeah. You're not worth that. 
you know, you've already done all this stuff to me and uh, I deserve better than that. And, and Jesus laid aside all of that out of obedience to the father. Yes, but also out of love for us. And so I think that was what Satan was trying to get him to do. But then I think that he also appealed to Jesus' pride when he's on the cross and he's experiencing all that pain. And they say, you know, show us if you're really God. I mean, the human nature would really be... Uh, Strike him down. Yeah, I mean, we, we would be very... We, as humans, would be very yes. tempted to say, all right, I'll show you. you yeah, know? That's right. I'm going to call them angels. I'll show you. That's right. And Jesus didn't do that. And he knew that these people were oblivious. They were blinded. And he says, Father, forgive them. I don't, I don't know if... I kind of get what you're saying, you know, Satan, and, and he might have been thinking this. And, but on the other hand, Jesus knew what was going on. And, and he tells Peter, you know, I pray for you because because Satan, what does, I forget what it says. Satan is sifting you. Yeah, exactly. Right. So he's like praying for like, because he knows what's going on yeah. in the spirit world. Well, he does. At the same he knows. Time. And so, he's not oblivious. He knows what prophecy is. He knows the future. But sure. again, we have to understand he's a man. Yes. He's God and he's man. Yeah. So from his, from a human perspective, he could be going through that. Yeah. The, the idea is Satan, if he can't get Jesus from, from going to the cross, like he's already reached this point, sure. right? I mean, he's this gonna, isn't back three years can ago. I take down? Yeah. It, yeah. This isn't in the wilderness right. where I could disqualify him and I could stop it from happening. He's mm. already at this point. So what can I do now that Jesus is about to die? Mm. What can I do that might give me a chance of preventing this? So don't die for him. Right. I think that it, when he was on the cross, Satan knew Jesus can get down from this. Yep. He can. And I think that that was the temptation. Get down from the cross, Jesus. Like, remember um, in the, the wilderness, he puts right. him on top of the temple. He says, if you're the son of God, you can cast yourself down. That's right. If, and, and you'll be caught by the angels. If you're the son of God, you can command that these stones be turned into bread. It's right. like, if you're the son of God, then prove it to everybody. Yeah. Jesus, you don't have to suffer for these people. Right. Look at, they're maligning you. They're mocking you. They're spitting in your face. They've beaten you. They pushed a crown of thorns on your head. They're, they're ripping their garments up. And again, that's right. that temptation was very real, but Jesus doesn't give in to it. He doesn't succumb. Mm. And so... I think that that was probably Satan's end game. I, I, I mean, I could be wrong. There are some no, people who right. there's some people who think that Satan was surprised by it all, but I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so, it's not just because maybe the Old Testament prophecies weren't clear to him. It's not that Jesus in his ministry has already told his disciples, "I'm going to die," and he's already explicitly said out loud for all out the loud. demons to hear. Right. He said, "I will offer myself as a ransom." Mm. I will give my life as a ransom. So I don't think that that just passed the notice of Satan. I think that he mm. knew that Jesus was going to offer himself up to save people. Now, did he understand all of the mechanics involved? Maybe not. But I think that he knew Jesus is determined to die, right? He, he's going yep. to the, he's going to go well, he, to death. And he, know, he already knows what, what I, Isaiah, Isaiah yeah, and said, I, right? And I, exactly. And the prophets knew, look, it, yes. it says in First uh, Peter 2, um, or was it first Peter one? It's first Peter one. Yeah. First Peter one. It says there that the prophets, they knew Jesus would suffer. Absolutely. Now they didn't know when the suffering how and the glory, how that was going to work, sure. but they knew it would happen. Yeah. So if the prophets knew, you know, darn well that the devil knows. Yeah. And so I think that he's trying to, um, 
really take advantage of the weakness of everybody involved. Judas, we know he wasn't a believer. He can use that. He can use Peter. He can use all the disciples. They're weak. Yeah. And if, if, if I can show, if I can hurt Jesus, if I can wound him by seeing all of this betrayal and seeing all this wickedness and seeing all of the, the hatred and the ungratefulness yeah, yeah, yeah. and like these people are not worth it. Like they're really not worth it. Then if Jesus would have given into that, then mankind wouldn't have been redeemed. Right. Um, and that would have been the end of the story for us. Right. But, um, yeah. And so, I I mean, I don't think that really we, we ought to feel the need to understand exactly what Satan was trying to do. After all, I mean, let's say that he knew he was going to lose. Yes. Let's just say he knew. Well, he's a sadistic, evil individual. And at that point, he could just be like that that child who goes around knocking stuff maliciously, knocking stuff over just because they, they can, you know, and yeah. he could have taken some grim satisfaction from making Jesus's death. Since it was going to happen, I'll make it as bad as I can make it. Maybe that was what he was doing. I, absolutely. Um, he did. I think that he'd certainly enjoyed it. Yes. Um, but I think that, um, if you ever seen the passion of the Christ, yes, it, it basically takes that theory and runs with it. And it mm. depicts Satan in the garden of Gethsemane saying, you can't take the sins of the world. Mm. You know, you can't do that. And, um, you know, they're not worth it. They're not worthy of it. And, um, and he's trying to do that up until the very end. And then when Jesus dies and says it is finished, uh, a drop of blood falls from him and it hits the ground. And then it takes you down into the center of the earth. Right. And you see Satan there and Satan basically wails and gnashes his teeth because he knows that he's lost. Mm. And, and that always made an impression on me. I don't believe you should base your theology on a movie's a movie. treatment of the Bible. It should be right. the Bible itself. But, uh, to me that just always struck a chord and made sense. Mm. Um, so I'll find out for sure one day, but ultimately it comes down to again the atonement what was jesus doing on the cross the plain sense of scripture is we are sinners right we deserve to die we're indebted to god our debt is infinite and jesus the infinite god man took our place and he paid our penalty by suffering it Mm -hmm. he actually suffered our penalty and whenever i see people um who are pastoring churches and theologians that are respected Mm. when they're questioning that it really scares me because this is something that has gone unchallenged. Like since the reformation when, yeah, listen, I don't agree with everything the reformers taught, but I will give them this. They brought us back to the Bible. Absolutely. And they brought us back to the gospel. I disagree with them on predestination, right? (laughs) But there's a bunch of things. They brought us back. Yeah. They brought us back to the Bible and, since the Reformation, up until the late 1800s, mm. the doctrine of penal substitution, Jesus bearing our wrath, God's wrath, sorry, on, on us um, and taking our place so we wouldn't have to experience any of that, that was not challenged hmm. all during that time. I mean, it, it, when I say it, was, it wasn't challenged, there were some people that disagreed with it and they wrote against it, but those people were not, um, they weren't mainstream thinkers. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were rationalist and I don't, I don't think society honestly was swayed too much by him. So Satan's mm-hmm. always had a witness. He's always had people, 
Um, and he's been trying to do his best to, to give them a voice. But I think that the voice against penal substitution has gotten much louder in the past years. And huh. the voice against the deity of Christ has gotten louder. The, it certainly has. The voice against the inerrancy of scripture has gotten louder. Yes. Uh, literal creation, gender roles, all of those things. It's like people, away. Wow. yeah, people have had an issue with this for a long time, but they haven't really gotten anywhere with it. Uh, yeah. They just haven't, but now they're getting their way, and and that's what's concerning. So quickly getting yeah. their way. Like so the this. atonement is one of those things that I think as Christians we take for granted, right? Yeah. But sadly, a lot of Christians don't they don't think about it too much, and um, they're surprised when they hear, oh, there are people out there that are teaching that. Yeah, and those people are not stupid they are intelligent eloquent writers and the devil can be very persuasive Mm. and so you got to be on your guard so that way you don't fall into the trap right because i mean it it, it's just a fact satan can be very very persuasive and so we got to stick to our guns on these topics stick to the bible yeah stick to the bible and you know that's that's our gun that's our sword of spirit you know so like i said peter lays it out there for us he says he suffered, and he suffered one who was just in the place of the unjust. Right. And he died in this fleshly realm that his life came to an end. But unknown to the eyes of man or the minds of man, while Jesus' body was in the grave for those three days and three nights, he was alive in the eyes of the Father. The Father was pleased, and the Father was waiting to reveal that to the world. Mm. It was going to be an exciting reveal. But Jesus had things to do. During those three days and three nights, Jesus wasn't just fulfilling the prediction that he would be in the grave three days and three nights, but he had stuff to do. He went mm-hmm. down and he preached to the spirits in prison and he went to the paradise. And, mm-hmm. and and who knows what happened there. I wonder if a great fellowship took place. I can't help but think there was a party. you know, Because they've mm-hmm. been waiting for their Messiah. Abraham has been waiting. Say, David's been waiting. There, right? because... and, and they're all there. And Jesus shows up. And I, listen, I, I don't see how you couldn't get excited about that. And yeah. so Daniel, all that's happening. The Lord is the, the, the father is pleased. The, the mm. saints are rejoicing in paradise. And then you have the disciples weeping in the upper room, Yeah, you know? And so that blew my mind when I just considered that. And that's another thing that I think uh, a lot of churches, they have, uh, they've gotten wrong. They don't believe that Jesus literally descended during that time. Uh, the Apostles' Creed is, you know, one of those earliest creeds. Right. It goes back to about the the second century. It was first called the Rule of Faith, and it mentions the descent into hell. And a lot of people are bothered by that, but um, it's literally the descent into Hades. Right? Hades is the place of the dead. And so it doesn't say that he descended there and he suffered there. It just means that while he was, you know, alive in spirit, like Peter says, he was doing things. You know, Jesus' spirit wasn't attached to his body and sleeping as his body rested there. I mean, he was, he was active. I mean, you can't, you can't keep down the Lord. Once the, the death was accomplished and he said it is finished, he had things to do, places to go. Um, and that's, that's something that I think uh, soon, when I say soon, you know, who knows, but it, it's been <laughs> mentioned, um, it's been mentioned by some people on the internet that uh, 
Mel Gibson has been planning to do a sequel to The Passion of oh, Christ. Oh yeah, I've heard this before. Yeah, like the resurrection of Christ. Yeah, something like that. And it was he said in interviews, it's gonna be unlike anything you've ever seen. And he said it's because we're gonna get into some spiritual stuff. And what he means is he's going to depict Jesus descending in spirit to the spirits in prison. And I don't since he's Catholic, I don't know how exactly well, he's going to handle that. Well, because the Catholics that. do the um, Apostles' Creed. They do, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I don't honestly, I'm ignorant in that subject as far as what they believe regarding his descent. Um, yeah. If they affirm the Apostles' Creed, obviously they believe that it happened, right? But there are different versions of the Apostles' Creed, and some do not have that statement in it, right? There are... Yeah, no, but I remember that statement. So... Because I went to Catholic Church for a little while. But, I mean, yeah, so he's going to depict that, and that would be eye-opening to a lot of people, because, honestly, whenever we talk about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we usually go through the suffering of Christ, yeah. we talk about the crucifixion and all that it entails, and then we say, and he was in the grave for three days and three nights. And then, and then we get to the resurrection, right? And yeah, so we don't yeah, talk yeah. about that other stuff. And I guess it's because it's weird and people don't like discussing the fact weird that things. Jesus might have gone there, but they don't understand why he went there. Yeah, I mean, he's already said it is finished. He's not going to hell to suffer. Um, that much is made clear by Peter. It says he was alive. Yeah, and he's not suffering death there. But, I was trying um, to. I thought there was a psalm about it, and I'm trying to think of where it was, but I could be wrong. Um, there thinking. is a psalm that talks about not leaving um, your holy one to suffer corruption. Is that what you're talking about? No, I it's thought it was something like... I was thinking of Psalm 22, I think is what I was... But I thought there was something about... I, I'm probably wrong. <laughs> well, that's okay. I'm wrong sometimes, too. And if you ask right. Katie, I'm wrong very often. Well, you know, that's how it goes. I mean, yeah, when your wife's wrong, so... <laughs> <laughs> but uh anyways for those of y'all that are listening uh we're probably going to go ahead and wrap it up and we'll just leave any of our you know discussion our one-on-one discussion we're just going to have that i guess because you don't want to listen to all our ramblings but Cause uh, we ramble a lot. yeah because we ramble a lot but thank you for listening in if you are listening and hopefully this was beneficial to you and uh if you have any questions you can always go to our facebook page arc of hope and ask those questions just message us and uh, we'll do our best to get back with you and and if uh, I ever say something doesn't make sense if he lies you know (laughs) just uh, let me know right I mean uh, I want to be I want to be accurate and accountable in the eyes of the Lord so hope that it's a blessing to y'all and that's a wrap awesome thanks buddy